This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 12th of June 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my fully pipelined and highly scalable co-host, Jon. Hey, Jon, how are you doing? You keep calling me fat, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> scalable, that means you can scale up and, and down. Um, yeah, but it's a lot of effort either way, but thank you, and hey, Dave. Hey, hey, Dave. How's the temperature at your end? Uh, it's not too bad. It's sort of um, early 20s. Centigrade, so it's kind of it's a, it's a nice, gentle so, temperature. It's early thirties here, so uh, it's kind of sweltering. Oh wow! And, okay, and there's a bit of a summer storm going out outside in the distance, so there might be some thunder cracks. We'll see if the <laughs> uh, internet survives it. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Designed to designed to withstand <laughs> nuclear weapons, so I'm sure a, a small thunderstorm won't be an issue. Yeah, it's a Hadoop approach, right? Fail, fail fast. <laughs> Let's hope not. Anyway, it's a news episode. It is, and therefore let's talk about some news. Uh, yep, uh, you go first. So, I think. Yeah, I think I think it is. I think it is. So I have um, a sort of something that came across my um, my vision desk. around. Yeah, my my news desk. <laughs> Uh, something passed me by uh, one of my lackeys. No, not really. Oh, I, just came, I didn't came pass up in anything. My, <laughs> <laughs> came up in my uh, in my Feedly results, actually, which um, was a Ars Technica article around the Buick Smart Driver app. Uh, explains why uh, the title is uh, Buick Smart Driver app explains why my gas mileage sucks and my editors doesn't. Um, and it's it's really you know we talk a lot about different um, use cases and different things that people are doing in a variety of big data platforms, and this I, I thought was interesting because this is really uh, this isn't talking about Hadoop or big data that sort of thing at all. This is actually all talking about the user experience of of what that can deliver and consumption you know, in side. A, yeah yeah it, it's it's the the consumption side of it, and in in a nutshell. And two guys, you know, drive around in the, in, in the same car over a, a two consecutive weeks, I think it is, and uh, and get wildly different um, MPG results. And the the sort of the the app that is linked up to these smart devices um, is able to give them, you know, a lot more detailed information about their driving habits. And the most interesting thing I think about it is the fact that the um, you know people. The, the author sort of acknowledges that actually it did change his driving style once he started to look at this kind of thing. You know, it didn't make him completely sort of become uh, driving Miss Daisy, but it, it sort of did just having the data in front of him in that easily accessible way made it sort of far more, you know, far more real to him than just kind of, oh, I, I fill up at the pump, you know, yeah. a few days earlier than someone else does sort of thing. Yeah, and I can attest that it does work because uh, I drive a hybrid car. Mm. Uh, it's not a plug-in, but it has a battery in there. And this is a pretty old one because it's seven, eight years old now. So this mm-hmm. was actually when, in this part of the world anyway, that was kind of new. So the car manufacturer put a little gamification thing in there. When I drive, there's like five little trees. And mm-hmm. the better I drive, the more green trees I get. <laughs> and the whole idea is that it's kind of teaching you how to drive an electrical car because 
there's different. You have to kind of feel since the battery being charged when you brake and when you go downhill and stuff like that. You have to kind of uh, yeah, f- work that way to make it work f- productively, and yeah. it actually works very well. At the beginning, it was a horrible. Th- I, I just couldn't get any trees to stay green because I was used to a petrol car. Yeah. Nowadays, if I don't have four and a half green trees, I really did something stupid or or nervous or, I don't know, irritated for some reason, <laughs> which causes people to drive like madmen. Trust me. Yeah. You know. And yeah, it really works. And that's just with a couple of trees. Now, having something like this, an app that actually gives you insight. Now, I, I did also start uh, recording all my fuel intakes in a little app on my phone, but it's a manual mm. thing. Yeah. Having this automatic is, yeah, I can guarantee it. It does work. It's making people see things, making them be aware of things. Awareness is everything. Yeah. And, and we've had, we've had sort of usage based insurance, um, sort of a variety of usage based insurance companies. Now, Progressive is one that's been very famous and very vocal talking about, you know, their findings at a variety of different, uh, uh, summits over the years, it, it it really does change behavior. That's sort of awareness. Have you seen that kind of insurance uh, come over the pond? Because that's an American company, if I'm not mistaken, and it's been going on um, for a while. Yeah. In this part of the world, I know that there's I know one company is looking at it, but none of them actually are doing it. There are a few of them available. I certainly, okay. um, last time I renewed my insurance, I, I did notice there were a handful more organizations that now you could get some sort of monitored sort of usage-based premium Mm. that, you know, could or should be cheaper depending on your driving style. Of course, uh, it's, it's, it's all about uh, how, how prepared you are to uh, stump up that fact. As, as you say, if if you get irritated or you you (laughs) do a lot of heavy braking all of a sudden, uh, you you need to accept the consequences for that as well. So again, that's also in the article at the end. He says that uh, I didn't really change my driving style because there wasn't something attached to it. Uh, If I had been, uh, what it says, yeah, and I'm sure, I'm glad that my insurance rates weren't at risk, although knowing there would be no real stakes out other than the public shame of having to admit it all, blah, blah, blah. So (laughs) he also says that if it was something on his insurance, he would probably have driven, yeah, more, uh, yeah, called sanely or more protectively, less aggressively, let's call it that. Yeah, less aggressively, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. But again, on this end of the world, I haven't really seen it much because, well, I guess legislation also gets in the way a little bit. And of course, the technicalities of it, because before, you always had to have a kind of a dongle or something else installed in your car, which is something that can break and then cause problems. And modern cars have this in by default these days, or at least the the connectivity has been standardized. So that also takes away a hurdle. Yeah, I mean, it used to be kind of the the, the very early devices were sort of black boxes uh-huh. that you had to like go to a place and get them wired up into your exactly. into your car's ECU and all that sort of stuff. the The modern ones are um, largely sort of devices that they can just plug into the ODB two um, diagnostic port on your car. Well, they're self powered. He has the details. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, I I know a couple of organisations that are that are actually you know using this tech out there, and it's they're relatively simple things. They've got you know built in um, built in sort of GPS, and um, they also say so can hook into the the car's um, systems as well. And as you as you rightly say, Jan, the the, the latest generation of cars actually have a lot of this kit kind of built in and a lot of the vendor 
um, the car vendors, their insurance, you know, there's a, an option if you're using this, the latest and greatest platforms, you can take your insurance through them and you can have that, that usage-based mm-hmm. um, version of your insurance <coughs> there. So, yeah. Well, looking at the article, it also strikes me that this is still early days because they're just in the reporting stage. They're not doing any kind of predictives or something like that. I mean, something I would like on this app is a ding that says you have to go to get petrol in three days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just some, give me something out of here. And you made me aware of stuff, which is great, but you can do more. Of course, they'll need a couple of years of uh, data before they can actually do predictive. So, But my guess would be that they've probably got a lot of this data anyway, not from... You know, not perhaps not from quite as as wide a variety of devices, but most most modern cars, um, you know, do have you know they have fleets of them, usually fleet vehicles that are um, actually sending this kind of information mm-hmm. continuously. Anyway, it's just part yeah, of the, but part uh, of what you sign up to as being being uh, taking up a fleet of vehicles from a manufacturer. Yeah, but I'm not talking about predicting the car's characteristics. I'm predicting the driver's characteristics. And I have a job that does a lot of work at home. Somebody else has a job that has them go to the uh, main it, city it, every day. Yeah. I do a lot of groceries, but I do them with my bike and not with my car. I'm lying, by the way. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> else is different. Uh, so that kind of predictivity that I can know that me, Jon, if I keep on driving regularly for the rest of this month, I know I'll have to go and get about 60 euros worth of gasoline in the next 14 days. I don't know. Got it, got it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it goes financial planning, it goes uh, not being dry somewhere at the side of the, of the road. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know, I, I hate this, when I'm driving in the little uh, fill engine, gas light goes, bing, oh God, okay, I have 50 more kilometers I can drive. I hate this. If yeah. I have a, if it's traffic jam, uh, just having a little bit more, I don't know, predictability in that would be, uh, that would be fun and easy to do with the, the data they have anyway now. Yeah, Again, yeah, if they yeah. have no, enough time, if they have enough, uh, enough breadth of data there. Yeah, and no, that's a good point. It's a good point. And yeah, also, of course, then you get a bit of GDPR world at this point then, but they might also be able to monetize this data by giving it back to the uh, garages, to the car dealerships. Because then yeah, they can, because I can now get a mail every six months from my uh, dealerships uh, telling me, asking me to give me my, give them my uh, their mileage so that they can predi- say, okay, you need to come in for, for maintenance or not. Which means that they can only kind of schedule their own workplace with a, a week's advance. With this kind of information, they would be able to do that a lot easier. And I would not have to search for a slot to do a maintenance on my car and have to wait two weeks before a slot is, a- is available. Because they would just know, yeah, we need to keep that slot for Jon because that's when he's coming in. Yeah, yeah. I think and a lot of cars have, a lot of my auto manufacturers have a, some of the pieces of that journey already mm-hmm. in operation. But I don't know that anyone has that that fully yeah. that fully mapped out. But I mean, you can definitely see that's where they're all trying to head to. Yeah, I think it's going to be a question of uh, who has the guts to do it. Because if you do predictive and it's bad, because it's the first iterative iterative step, it's always going to be bad before it gets good. You kind of have some bad publicity. Yeah, I've got brand X and always told us to go for gas, and I never needed when it tells me to. But you have to go at some point. You'll have to start this if they ever want to get good. Yeah. No. Very okay. very true. Future talk, always fun. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So I think now you uh, you have some interesting data pipeline journey to talk to us about. Uh, yeah, let's search the article. 
I, I found an article. Uh, it's from May 17th. And it's entitled Looking Under the Hood of the Eventbrite Data Pipeline. It's on uh, the Eventbrite uh, blog, engineering blog site. And it's a fairly lengthy uh, article on how their existing uh, data infrastructure wasn't uh, performing as it should and how they're changing it. So it's a little bit of a uh, lessons learned uh, changed uh, article. But I've also, through reading this, seen a, a, a kind of a lot of things that my instinct said, yeah, well, if you're going to do this, of course it's not going to work. Looking through the article, uh, they started out in CDH3 time span. So this is a fairly old, relatively old environment. So they probably started out with this when everybody was still starting out and there wasn't that much information out there where you could actually have the lessons learned and avoid pitfalls that other people already did. So there's also some uh, some excuse there, let's say, that yeah, nobody knew exactly how to do this at that time. So they did it a way they thought it was going to happen. The they, they started off with uh, like their their core database platform. By the looks of it, was a lot of uh, My, MySQL databases. Yeah, and that's one of the first things I, I also noted. Uh, we use MySQL as our main production data store. That already gives you an indication of either it's a very small company, which is possible in those days, or have you really thought about your data landscape? in depth because MySQL I love MySQL when I, when I do little hobby projects and I have little websites and MySQL is my data mart behind it or just my my database behind it it works brilliantly and it's cheap it's easy it's free if you go for MariaDB if you don't want to have the Oracle uh, link in there it all works flawlessly but if you really go for production systems uh, I don't know and especially if you have to have an environment that actually uh, says that a Hadoop uh, implementation is good you're not small anymore at that point. Yeah. So that's also one the first thing that triggered me in the first sentence of the article, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, so they went to uh, CDH, uh, started CDH3, and then went to CDH5, and it was released, so they kind of filled up on that. But uh, as I said, they had some challenges there. And one of the first challenges they talked about is the fact that their CDH was living on reserved instances, which means uh, Amazon uh, Cloud. Mm-hmm. And the cost was a major problem. And this was for me a, uh, you're using cloud wrong. Again, this is early days. Nobody knows how to do this, but they were using reserved instances, which means it's basically a lift and shift operation. You're using yeah. cloud as if it was your own data center, and that's not using the cloud advantage there at all. So this is being expensive. Yes, I can totally agree that's going to be expensive. <laughs> yeah. Also, they were using things like solid-state drives on their VMs, which also, if you look in Hadoop, definitely in those days, although they're talking the CDH5 cluster here, but I'm assuming CDH3 is going to be will have been similar if those were also solid-state drives in those in that time of uh, in that age. Mm. That's that's uh, scaling vertically, not horizontally. That's not your Hadoop way of looking at things. My guess would be and this is this is a guess because from what i've read of the article and what i've dug into it i i don't see anything around it but my guess would be that they went for solid state drives because they you know you look at the data sources a lot of mysql they had a relatively small data set that they were trying to do trying to process in hadoop so scaling out was tricky for them because they just didn't have the 
data that would make sense to scale out. So they 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 went the alternative approach of just trying to throw yeah. faster disks at it. But if it's small, then throw more memory in it. Put it in memory. Yeah. Yeah. Then the SSD is, is like a, a measure that doesn't really solve your problem at that point. Also, since it's CDH, I'm assuming they're using Impala because uh, a bit further down in the uh, article, they actually talk about switching to Hive, which means they were not using Hive before, I think. It doesn't really say that here. Yeah. And yeah, Impala also typically has smaller data sets in there and is a soft a solution that uh, benefits from uh, memory. Yep. Solid state drives, less of an issue there. It really looks like, okay, this thing is not performing fast enough. Let's put SSDs in there. That'll solve things. Push more money in there. It'll solve things. Again, yeah. not really the Hadoop way of looking at things. Yeah. Now the second, so go ahead. I was just going to say, the other thing that they, they talk about beyond the, the MySQL, because I, I don't want to just suggest that that's all they were bringing in, but they were, no, they bringing, were bringing in, yeah, yeah. So they're bringing in a lot of... Yeah. Um, Salesforce Kafka weblog. Yeah. Uh, sorry, a lot of weblogs for web analytics integration, and they actually they mention a proprietary tool I've not heard of before called Blamo Kafka that pulled the <laughs> weblogs directly from Kafka daily and dumped them into Hive tables partitioned by day, mm-hmm. which is actually that's a, that's a workflow that I see people using a lot. So I wasn't aware of the there was a specific tool for that, and they also use the uh, Salesforce Bulk API to okay. ingest all objects daily to overwrite yeah but you're going too fast you're going too fast you're going too fast (laughs) okay okay help me out here it's a long article let's go top to bottom or else we're going to have real chaos on our hands because the next step after the cost thing was that their analytics were in problems because they did not have a single source of truth so Mm -hmm. they were still even in a hadoop environment using their data silos which if i remember correctly in cdh3 was still the way to go but uh, pretty much it's Data Lake 101 where you have to, yeah, it's a data lake, so don't, don't yeah. do that. If you keep this up, you will not have a, a performed cluster. So again, iterative approach, this is a first step perhaps, but don't expect this to work uh, the way it should work, to be honest. The scheduling part they talk about, it is scheduled by Uzi, mm-hmm. and they're having problems with that. And I was thinking about that myself, and yeah, Uzi is a, a pain in the uh, some some region. Uh, it's not a very user friendly tool, and a lot of people don't like it. And it's probably going to go away soonish as well. But on the other hand, what else is there? What would you use? And you're not talking about Yarn mm. here, right? Because Yarn will do no, scheduling no, no, of no. jobs. This is really <coughs> scheduling something to start at some point. I mean, all I can think of is using the cron stuff that's in, in your system. Yeah, so there's from for my for my perspective, there's a couple of different options here. So Uzi has got better mm-hmm. with the um the Ambari view for Uzi that, that makes it a little bit more consumable. But I I tend to see organizations go in one of two directions. They either adopt a native su- solution, you know, like Uzi, or you know, even I do actually know a couple of pe- people that, that do schedule stuff just through cron cron jobs and scripting. But um, the other direction that uh, organizations often go is they already have some sort of enterprise-wide job scheduler. And most of these platforms are um, expensive, but also have add-ons for um, Hadoop. Now, they're talking Control-M, that kind of stuff. That Exactly that yeah. sort of stuff, yeah. But the, the challenge there, I find, is often... Um, 
the enterprise schedulers, you know, they have, yes, we support Hadoop. Mm-hmm. And then you, you kind of peel back the, the layers a little bit and you find out, okay, so what exactly do you support? Yeah, yeah, and it yeah, yeah. tends to be a relatively limited subset. And it's not always up to date. Well, it's very rarely up to date with any of the latest mm-hmm. um, interactions. Yeah. So despite the fact that Uzi is quite... Um, it can be quite prickly to, to use, and there is a, definitely a learning curve there. But, you know, on the bright side, Uzi is evolving at the same speed as the rest of the platform, whereas I, I don't typically see that. And I don't, I'm not an expert in this area. I don't, I can't proclaim to uh, know everything about every single scheduler yeah, 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 uh, that's yeah, yeah. out there. But I, I don't see that same level of um, that same level of. I guess development speed or integration speed from the other ones that I have um, talked to previously. And if actually, if there is someone out there <laughs> in the enterprise scheduler space that has a really good solution, and I know that um, there are a couple of open source solutions. So there's um, oh, what's the 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 one that came out of? Um, did it come out of? Oh, my my memory has completely failed me. Um, Must be the age. Uber or Airbnb? Um, Airflow, that's it. <laughs> so that Airflow came out of the Airbnb engineering team. And I have seen, excuse me, I have seen a couple of organizations um looking at this but i've not seen anybody else take it through to through to production yet and again if there is someone out there or even airbnb if you'd like to come and talk to us um happy to uh, happy to have that chat but well, actually, in, in their article a few a things further there. down, they actually talk about using Luigi, which is a uh, Python job scheduler, apparently, mm. which I haven't, I've heard of, but haven't looked at. Yeah, but it looks I very specific I... for Python, if I read this correctly. Yeah. Yeah, it's an open source Python framework created by Spotify. So if you're all doing all at Python, might be good, but it might be too limited for uh, generic uh, approaches. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on from scheduling, uh, they also had a problem with, uh, let me see, yeah, with uh, compete compute resources uh, competition, where jobs frequently conflict with each other and competed for resources. With that first, I saw, what? On a Hadoop classic resource competition? You have yarn for that. And then I remembered we were using CDH. Uh, different scheduler. Uh, well, CDH is always, uh, in, at the beginning, they didn't have Yarn. At the moment, I think Yarn is still a option you can use if you wanted to. And Yarn specifically is built to avoid uh, resource com- uh, uh, competition by having queues in there that have some flexibility to make sure that your everyday jobs don't get killed i mean they can get slowed down a bit but don't get destroyed by uh, ad hoc uh, queries but it's all it's always going to be um i mean they're, they're talking about the actually they don't mention the version number when they're talking about this oh no they do they do so they, they, they're talking about cdh5 here so yarn is optionally embedded in cdh5 it's, optional. it's not there oh, by well. default okay but even if you did bring in yarn the, there are different approaches to using it. So, for example, yeah. um, the yeah, Hortonworks has, has always um, been very vocal about their support of the capacity scheduler, mm-hmm. and CDH has always been on uh, pushing the, the fair scheduler. And there are 
they they, they fulfill similar purposes, but they they do have differences in the way yeah. they approach things. So there could be an element of but, that as but well. But both ways, know. you can deploy it in a way that it uh, resolves this problem. Because the problem, if mm. I read this, if I paraphrase it, is that they had a job that needed to run every day reliably, and it got... Uh, stuck or got uh, delayed or got slower because ad hoc queries. So even if using capacity or or the uh, the other one, forget the name now. Fair. Uh, fair share. Thank you. You can put a queue in place that makes sure that at least that business workflow does not get interrupted. Yep. And but yeah, it if you don't, like they and if they start with CJ's three without yarn and went to CJ's five with a simple upgrade, ha- putting yarn in in at that point is a yeah, bit of a reasonably major uh, operation, I'd say. So maybe they never went that way. Yeah, it's kind of strange because as, as we as we're running through this, I must mm-hmm. admit, um, when you shared the the link with me initially, I thought, well, this is really quite detailed. But actually, there's also <laughs> a lot of really unanswered questions. Uh, yes. It it's kind of it's at that middle level of detail yeah, exactly. where it fools you into thinking it's got a lot of detail. But actually, and that's also why I want to go through this in detail a little bit because if you read this at first glance, you would have a very different conclusion. And if you really read this and think about it, and that's why I think it was a good uh, candidate for a little new show. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So moving on to ingestion, yeah, that was a big, uh, oh my God. Uh, apparently, they were doing full ingestions every day of all data. Guess yeah. what? That doesn't scale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing anything with Hadoop, you're have, you should have file sizes, data sizes. That means you have to look at some kind of CDC or incremental way of getting new parts of your data. If you're doing full copies every single time at some point, you will either open your checkbook even further <laughs> Or it'll fall yeah, over. It's just, I mean, it's just, it's just uh, that piece is particularly crazy. You're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, they even mentioned that actually it was set up as full ingestion for all tables each day, and typically took most of the, most day, of to the day to finish. <laughs> so by the time <laughs> the, the ingestion has finished, they're they're looking at re-ingesting again, yeah. which is, as you say, it's just bonkers. Bonkers. And that's why I. This is where I kind of made the 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 the, the, the mind a step from. Okay, when they did this they didn't really know what they were doing. And when they did this, pretty much nobody really knew what they were doing. <laughs> yep. Some would say we're still in that space today, but... <laughs> yeah, but not for this stuff anymore. I think that no, uh, these no. kind we're, of things, we've, uh, we've evolved into a different layer of not knowing what we're doing. Okay. Competence scales. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's how this stuff, uh, all the problems they had with the existing environment. And I think you went over them detailed enough to, yep, yeah, those were definitely problems that they could have known 2020 hindsight. But at, yeah. uh, in that day when they did this, yeah, this was new. So good to see that they were able to see those problems existed. And then they have the solution, EMR, Presto, Hive, and Luigi to the rescue. So they kind of ditched the... Uh, well, ditched Hadoop in favor of EMR, um, which I wouldn't call Hadoop, although it does do a lot of Hadoop similarities. And um, yeah, I mean, they said here they, they went to this way to solve the pain points from our previous CDH environment. I think that's a bit too 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 aggressive. I mean, it's more like a badly implemented Hadoop environment that caused problems. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no I, I don't see any issue to use CDH or HTTP and implement it with everything they did before, but in a correct way. And if you, mm-hmm. if you go, we're going to go through the rest of the article, and you see that basically 
they just changed everything the way we just talked about by doing incremental ingest by doing a scheduler do it the right way so for them they went to emr and it's working great perfect no problem with that mm-hmm. but it's not a slight against hadoop uh, clusters cdh or hdp it's just how it was implemented in the first place and yeah so if if you read this article it kind of looks like uh, hadoop clusters are bad and emr is good but in the end it's how they are using the stuff that makes it good yeah so, um, yeah, also one thing here, this is the first time they talk about that when they implemented the new environment, they, this involved meeting with key stakeholders to understand the business, business metrics. Apparently, they didn't do that in the first implementation, and that will cost you. Yeah. But again, yeah. probably because in those days, it was all just, uh, let's try something new. Yeah, it probably started up as a skunk works project, yeah, exactly. as, as as these things often do. Mm-hmm. But the the interestingly, the there's a, an image in the uh, <laughs> in the article, and it makes for great listening, I'm sure. But it's it's worth looking at, which just has multiple sheets of um, paper with you know post-it notes and lines drawn over them, and um, things that uh, that look like sort of um you it's, know Kanban board Kanban style board, yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> and, and just the number of organizations I go to where I see kind of entire walls covered with mm-hmm. stuff like this when people are going through this kind of transformation it just kind of brought a, brought a smile to my face really yeah. the fun part also is that in the center it starts with a nicely drawn uh, architecture data foundry architecture and then around it all the chaos happens <laughs> yeah. yeah indeed indeed so yeah, and below that I have a bit of a more abstract version of that drawing where they have kind of drawn the the data layout and uh, kind of weird for me, but maybe I'm looking at it wrong. They've got the lower end, uh, end which is the infrastructure being S3 Hive Metastore with Hive tables mm-hmm. drawn around it, which I, I yep okay. But then above that they have raw tables for Google Analytics, MySQL, Web Analytics, Salesforce, and other. How would you have already have Hive tables built on a lower level and then still have raw tables on top of Hive tables? That doesn't compute for me. Or, or, the, only thing, the only thing I can think of is that those are actually the Hive tables or the Hive databases that they have. Maybe, yeah. Because from Maybe. that point, they have data warehouse tables, which we're going to talk about in a second, and then they derive the data marts, which they're using. Yep. It's a bit of a, a weird uh, drawing there. Would have, been, would have enjoyed a bit more explanation about uh, what that exactly was supposed to mean. Yeah. But anyway, so they went with EMR, Elastic MapReduce and AWS. Um, kind of wondering if that's a good choice, because if you, if you read through it, they're also thinking of doing more uh, streaming and near, near real-time analytics and stuff. And EMR is a bit of a more of a closed source solution. Yeah, it uses a lot of uh, Hadoop stuff, but you are mostly limited to whatever Amazon is willing to put on there, version wise and uh, tool wise. Yeah. So, I'm I'd be wondering, I'd be very interested if they would do an, another article like this next year and see how that journey went there. So that's one thing but I was the, thinking. The hmm. major change that they really made, which seemed to be the. Um, the the thing that leapt out to me at least was when they made this shift, putting all their hive tables on S three. They 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 essentially talk about um, the fact that they they ended up um, you know making significant savings because they didn't have that consistent um, 
long running infrastructure. So you know, they they talk about eighty percent savings. Yeah, but then I, I've got that also a bit later. But uh, this still feels like I'm not sure if they went from a long run to ephemeral or not. They don't really detail that. Mm. So I'm not sure. I think the biggest difference they have now is that they have decoupled their storage from their compute. Yeah. Which they didn't have in the original version, <clears throat> which is a, 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 a which is sad actually, because every cloud, if it's uh, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Google, Rackspace, yeah. I guess, all of those cloud things have by default decoupled source and compute. Trust me, that's how these things yeah. work. Yeah. And all of them, at least today, again, when they did their first version, I don't know if that was uh, the case, but there was definitely a, a way of having decoupled also with the CDH environment they had. And that then allows you to have ephemeral compute, which you can scale up and down when you need and don't need it, going to those, well, that's the next part here, the intelligent resizing and the cost saving attached to that. That was already available in the standard uh, Hadoop environments as well. Even if you're going pure IaaS, you're still able to do that. Yeah, EMR makes it probably easier because it's kind of built in. But on the other other hand, it's talking about ETL jobs run daily and hourly uh, on scheduled EMR clusters. That kind of does feel like they're using ephemeral compute. Yeah, and it does. that also causes some problems here and there. So a lot of customers I talk to, they have a mix of the two. They have a long running cluster and yeah. then ephemeral clusters for things that happen once a day. But if something has to happen once every four hours simply booting up an ephemeral cluster, making it run and shutting it down again, especially if you're doing uh, quite a bit of uh, custom stuff on top of your cluster, which is not rare. I mean, you start off with, uh, with Hive and you start off with Spark, but you will add on libraries and tools and uh, the, 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 the Kafka thing you're using and stuff like that. Whenever you start an on-demand cluster like that, you have to make sure that that whole environment is also set up. Which it adds, adds point, complexity to that, exactly. that bootstrapping process. And I mean, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at Microsoft, so we have HD Insight, which gives you the same idea there. We have a, a cluster you start up, use it, and dump, dump it away again. And when I talk to my customers, I always ask them, okay, how much customization can it do? Because if your customization takes more time than managing a long-running cluster would take once a year, but you do it every four hours, it doesn't make sense. Yep. So. And the article, as you said, doesn't go in detail enough at that point to see, to talk about if they still have their long-running and ephemeral clusters side-by-side or not. Although, if you look at the cost savings a bit lower there, they're still using reserved instances and they're using spot instances now. Reserved instances, for me, that says, okay, this is a long-running cluster. You mm-hmm. wouldn't have reserved instances, so it looks like they're still using that, which is kind of uh, strange because in the CDH environment, reserved instances were bad because costly, and now... Apparently, they're good. And they complement them with spot instances. And in my... Okay, this is maybe a bit uh, myopic of my of me. I'll agree if uh, people think that. But I don't like spot instances for Hadoop. Because well, it kind of means that you're never sure if your anal- analysis will end. And if you're doing an analysis and you don't really care if it ends or not, why do you do it in the first place? Yeah, I mean the 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 whole the one of the ideas around spot instances is use them if you have if you have that flexibility in the timing, really, isn't it? Yeah, but then again, then why do it in the first place? And mm. typically, with spot instances, you ha- you want to have them very cheap at that point, which means you will get preempted, which means your uh, query will be slowed down or even have to restart at certain points because if enough of your working nodes go away. 
you will at a certain point because and don't forget that ACL oh, well, even if you, if you have a local ACFS environment losing three nodes can be enough to have data corruption and if it happens fast enough before you can have a replication step happening yeah I, I don't see how that works I mean uh, another public cloud out there <laughs> isn't doing spot instances but has a version of doing low um, uh, how do you call that? Uh, CPU gets cl- gets uh, clocked down if you use it too often. So you can't use yeah. the CPUs at 100% all the time. At a certain point, you get out of your CPU cycle quota and they get uh, clocked down. That way, for things like interactive use, that works very well because people are slow. Yeah. But for things that uh, benchmarks and uh, typical Hadoop clusters that run 100% all the time, that's also bad because it will still cause you problems. So I'm also, again, if they do another article like this in a year time, I really wonder if uh, this actually works for them. Because if they're doing this for the data scientists that wants a cluster for 15 minutes to do something, well, they can just have a, an ephemeral uh, EMR cluster boot up, do their thing and kill it again. Mm-hmm. Which is a much, uh, will be just as cost effective, I, I would assume. And will be much uh, more stable, more more uh, predictable that it will actually do what you want to do at that point. So... Again, that's what the cost savings apparently it's working for them, which is great. Um, oh, yeah, does talk about it as well. Reliability improves operations. Uh, EMR monitors nodes in each cluster and automatically terminates and replaces an instance if there's a failure. <laughs> Sounds good. Practice. Uh, if it happens too often, then that's a little a bit of a problem. Yeah. Uh, that's then. Then the part comes out the job scheduling. We're talking about Luigi, which I don't know about, but I have I've heard about before. Other people have mentioned this one to me, so it's something mm-hmm. we, we should actually take a look at at some point. Uh, next new thing they have was a centralized Hive Metastore, which kind of struck me as weird because if you're using Hive, you should always have a centralized Hive Metastore because I don't really know how you could actually use a non-centralized Hive Metastore. <laughs> I. Th- I think what they're talking about here is a centralized Hive Metastore that is used both by any long-running environments, but also by any ephemeral environments. Yeah, if you go from the uh, assumption that they actually are using two uh, the two versions of clusters, then yeah, 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 yeah. And then, of course, centralized Hive Metastore is how it should be done, right? Yeah. And now, uh, in the cloud that I know, <laughs> that's how it's set up anyway. Uh, ingestion, next part is, uh, ha, they have ingested tables incrementally now using a changed column. Wow. Uh, which is still a bad thing, actually, because a changed column will actually make him lose data if a column changes twice in between uh, updates. Yeah. So I'm hoping this is a uh, simplification and they have something more interest, more, more useful than that. But, yeah, uh, I mean, a changed column is a, it's a, it's a useful interim step. Uh, I mean, the, the other way I've heard it described is basically poor man's CDC. But what mm-hmm. It does sound like what they really need is a full-blown CDC solution, but then there's a there's a cost associated. To yeah, that. but but this is less than a poor man CDC. A poor man CDC is having a uh, what do you call that an, autom- an automation an automation in your database, and when a certain a row is is changed, you just duplicate that row into a kind of a log file or a log table, a temp table that contains all of the old versions of the thing. Yeah. And some database, like SQL Server, for instance, recently, recently has added something or recently has something called uh, historical tables where that happens automatically. So you don't have to go full CDC and the whole cost approach to still have something better than a changed column. At least use a timestamp or have multiple yep. timestamps per column so you know how to do this. But, well, they go for incremental, so that's definitely a good thing. And I'm pretty sure that that actually solves all their problems. 
because everything I read in the, the article that was a problem, I think was pretty much caused by the fact that they were doing full, uh, full uh, table loads every day. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. That's scalability, and that's just a problem there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, moving off, uh, sorry, finishing off a little bit. They do talk about Presto a bit. Sorry, they do talk about Presto a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we have mentioned Presto already, and we've said repeatedly we should have something from Presto on the uh, podcast because <laughs> apparently it's a useful thing, and we don't know enough about it. At least I still don't know enough about it. Yeah. The one it does thing, seem to pop up quite a bit. Yeah, but uh, the thing here is that when I hear Presto being used, it's because of its uh, its capability of having multiple backends, having a, a centralized, uniform frontend in front of it. You don't care if it's an Impala or Hive or Co- uh, Mongo or whatever. I'm pulling it out of my hat, not sure if that's really true. But they have that abstraction layer, let's say. Now, in this article, they say they're using Presto because it's a step away from, hap- from, hi- from Hive MapReduce because it has the DAG system, the, the, direct, the, the, the direct, direct specific graphs. graphs. That's Tez. Yeah. So if that's the reason why they go to Presto, <laughs> they're still doing it wrong. Sorry, I'm saying this a lot of times. And again, this is a learning experience for everybody. But somebody should have told them that if that's the reason to go to Presto, you're just adding complexity for something that's already built into Tez. Again, probably this is because they're coming from CDH, where Tez is not present. Yeah, I think it's been. I think Tez is one of those pieces that can be added. But I know that the oh, CDH no. I thought I thought it came along in a late, in a later version, oh, an C- early no. version of Tez, but I thought it was still there. Okay, no, maybe uh, not. Cloudera says Tez is bad. And Cloudera, if you hear this and I'm wrong, please reach out to us. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but this is just TES level, and they're not even talking about LRP yet. Now, EMR has TES as well, so I'm not sure why they're using Presto for this. Maybe they have other reasons for this as well. But this note here, this reduces end-to-end latency, and we found Presto to be quite snappy for ad hoc data exploration of a large data set. So it just looks like they need TES and LLAP, and Presto, while still a nice thing, doesn't really solve that problem here, but whatever. Going on to the last part, uh, the transformations. And mm-hmm. again, going back to Hive, this is where they're setting up their data warehouse stuff. They're not exactly telling us how they're doing it. They're just they're straight on to data exports there. But if they're using Hive today, and I think even EMR will have Druid uh, included soonish too. But uh, I would definitely tell them, uh, ask, uh, advise them to to take a look at the Druid implementation coming on top of uh, Hive for the OLAP requirements. Uh, good chance that uh, they will actually be served well by just having Druid in there instead of having yeah. everything duplicated into staging tables and stuff. Yeah. And on a, on a related note, actually, while I'm at the subject, uh, our next episode, we actually have somebody from the Kylin or Keelin uh, project. So yeah. we'll talk about that. There's someone from Kylijins, which is the commercial entity backing, uh, supporting it and whatever. A uh, person from uh, Shanghai who uh, stayed up late at night to uh, talk us through the whole Kylin uh, environment. So if people like the Druid and uh, Travodian things we did, we hope that the Kylin in, uh, interview is also something useful. Indeed. So that's that part. And yeah, then it's actually finally it's the end of the article. As I said, it was a long article. I've been talking a long time about it anyway. Oh God, we're 40 minutes already. My apologies. I do realize that I have been a bit negative about this. I do really appreciate them having the guts to put this online, to just show people, this is what we did, this is what didn't work, this is how we're trying to solve it. This is the kind of lessons learned article I really enjoy reading. Yeah, 
because that the, it actually does express something about someone's real journey. Exactly. People yeah. can actually, if you read this, and again, if you read this in detail, which is why I'm spending that much time on this, it should also help other people when they're facing with the same problems, seeing how other people solved it and maybe or maybe not, depending on your situation uh, context, uh, adopt their uh, what they did. So, uh, no, kudos to the uh, team at Eventbrite. Like what they're doing. Still have a learning path ahead of them, but that's for us all, I guess. <laughs> Indeed. There's no there's no shortage of that going on. And again, uh, I hope they uh, do another pr- uh, article like this next year to, to continually keep us up to uh, to speed with what they're doing here. Or even or even better, to your point around iterative, you know, more regular articles yeah. explaining their, their journey in, in a bit more depth. Hey, every Always year wonderful. is iterative as well, right? It's long, long-term long <laughs> iterative, but... <laughs> True. True. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Regular is better. Okay. So, yeah, I hope people listen to the podcast had some news out of my rambling here. And if not, let me know and I will do it again, although I make no promises. <laughs> and I think it's probably yep. about... Just want to mention for people who expect uh, next episode to be these. Uh, uh, let me just rephrase that. Uh, next episode is the Kylin uh, episode, as I already mentioned, mm-hmm. but there will be a second ODPI episode coming two weeks after that because, as yep. we mentioned in the, at the end of last episode, John had a lot more to talk about. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we're going to do another episode on that, but that's going to be in uh, two weeks further, three weeks further on. Fair enough. With that, it's all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of uh, big-sized big data. (laughs) (laughs) We will be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelfin.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the Hadoopcast tag, and you can contact us by email. Send your emails to podcast at roaringelfin.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and feedback. Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. See you then.